0: Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Jason.
1: Yeah, he's got a kid out there in Akron, and that child grew up to be LeBron James.
0: And by Emmy Award-winning director and producer Rob Schroeder.
2: I'm, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm still doing my
0: thing. On this episode, we discuss the breakout role for Dune's Duke Leto himself, Oscar Isaac, in the 2013 Coen Brothers masterpiece, Inside Lewin Davis. We discuss the dangers of demanding artistic purity, great achievements in music, and marvel at the majesty of John Goodman. We'll also be announcing the details of our charity fundraiser for Texas Food Banks in light of the recent severe storms. DunePod will be matching contributions up to $5,000 to do our part to help out, and we hope you'll join us. And now, without further ado, Inside Lewin Davis. Uh,
2: who's mu- who, where's the music coming from?
0: That was, uh, that was on my side. I was playing. Okay, good. Uh, my buddy made a Dune playlist. Uh, of all like down tempo chill music. Cool. So we we've been having a good time. Uh it's replaced euphoria uh, soundtrack as my uh get get hyped music. So
2: get Hyped. Uh, Enya, Enya's out
0: <laughs> Yeah, what was the not Enya, what was the uh what was the other one? The make out album from, from that year, from nineteen eighty eight or eighty nine. Uh, isn't it that um ecstasy or something Gregorian Gregorian, Gregorian chance or something <laughs> What
1: was that? Uh, <laughs> what is that one called? I forget. Uh, the Gregorian Daisy chant, Gregorian <laughs> no. Chant
2: album. She would know.
1: I remember um, in my freshman year of uh, of college, that was like a really big that was like a really big album. Yes. And there was this girl who's from Tennessee who lived on our floor who is someone is uh, someone innocent. And uh, my roommate, my freshman year roommate, had a big crush on her. Mm-hmm. And he, like, she wasn't into him, but he was like to make, he was sort of like, you know, all right, well, if she's not going to hook up with me, she's not going to hook up with anyone. Was like uh, And uh, and so his big his big piece of advice to her in that front was, if you ever enter a boy's room late at night and they're playing the Gregorian chant album... <laughs> You have to leave. It only means one thing. Boys only want one thing when the Gregorian chant album is on.
0: That's right. So the album was Enigma. Enigma, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the band Enigma. was Enigma. Whatever. Uh, yeah. That, that's what. That what a glorious was, yeah. period
1: of time. What, what year did that come out?
0: I feel like that happened my freshman year of college, 1990. Okay, yeah, so it was right. a little bit after that.
1: Yeah, it was like six years. I was six years later. It was still. It was still banging in 1995, <laughs> 96. <laughs>
0: that is hilarious that's hilarious well listen Rob welcome back to dune pod hey thank you so great to have you back well we are very happy to have you back um, especially given the topic tonight um, we are talking about the Cohen brothers uh, which Jason will just take any excuse to talk any Cohen's at any time yep uh, but in this uh, particular week we are talking about Oscar Isaac, Duke Leto himself in really his huge breakout performance before Ex Machina, before Poe Dameron, uh, there was Inside Lewin Davis. This is only our second Coen Brothers film, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Because we just did um, no, no Country. Country. Mm-hmm. Yeah uh just i uh, it's a, it's just always excited i was like just so excited from the first frame of this movie i like i i was just so excited to be watching a coen brothers movie and this is one that i think i've only seen once before i think i only saw it in the theater same
2: same yeah, and it
1: and it, it was just a, I think I think for a lot of people it's like sort of an overlooked one. Yeah. um, it's like not doesn't have the notoriety of of No Country or True Grid or Fargo, um, but it is a fucking masterpiece. It's a tremendous movie. So I'm excited to talk about it.
0: All right, so wait to find out what our opinions are yeah. in just. A it's few a minutes. masterpiece. <laughs> End of pod. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we'll so we we'll get uh, right around the corner. We'll get into Inside and Davis next week. It was gonna be this week, but there's a polar vortex that took out Texas. Yeah. Um, and our guest Meredith Borders, uh, like a lot of Texas, was without power uh, for many, many days. Yep. Um, so we had to push Lady Hawk to next week. Um, spoilers, I did watch it uh, for the very first time. It is quite a uh, it's, it's a kind of film. so it's a so next week, next week we will uh, we'll get into that very excited for that. All right. Why don't we get into some Dune news? Would you like to know more? This is Dune adjacent. Uh, It was announced today by Warner Brothers that Reminiscence, which is the new Hugh Jackman film written and directed by Lisa Joy, showrunner of Westworld, and um, also produced by her husband, Jonathan Nolan, who's Chris Nolan's brothers. Uh, That film, Reminiscence, is a sci-fi, basically, um, Inception-type story, and it's coming out on September 3rd, so one month before Dune, and it's opening internationally two weeks before. So this, to me, feels like a little bit of confirmation of this uh, international Dune release in mid-September and then U.S. October.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, great.
0: Okay, that's it, for, that's it for Reminiscence. Second piece of Dune news. Denny uh, went on to IndieWire and gave a list of 20 films to watch to get ready for Dune.
1: Okay, interesting. That's, that's aggressive.
0: Maybe they framed it that way. You know, it's at least 20 movies Denny thinks people should see. So included in there, No Country, 2001, Children of Men. Oh, wow. Dead Ringers. Okay, Rob, you seen that one? I do. I like that one a lot. Have you seen that, Jason? I don't think I have. Rob, explain the concept of Dead Ringers.
2: <laughs> it's a tough. It's a tough one to explain. It's twin <laughs> brothers um, who are
1: gynecologists.
2: Who are gynecologists?
1: Oh, it's a it's a Cronenberg. Yes, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust the Cronenberg.
2: <laughs> one thing I I noticed about that list on IndieWire, yeah. was that it was my impression. That he didn't go to them with a list. They harvested 20 films that he said he liked, uh, and he, and those were those came out of like interviews throughout his entire career.
0: Weird. Okay, fair enough. So this is basically like Andy Wire was like, we noticed Denny likes these movies. Yeah. Okay, very good.
1: I've never heard of I've never heard of the Square. Oh, the Square. I saw the. I remember seeing the ads for that. Square is good. Yeah, I saw the ads for that one. Yeah. Mother. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty this is a pretty just this is like just a list of some of the greatest movies ever made. This isn't like a yeah. particularly like it doesn't seem very Doonish, Um but that's cool.
0: Fair enough. It's some good movies and we're gonna watch a bunch of them. Um so we are we are putting Mother back on the calendar. Um it's it's time to get that that squared away. So oh we Jesus,
1: that. that movie. I don't know if I can watch that with a infant in the house. Uh,
0: i still never seen
1: uh, it. Well, the
0: spoiler, (laughs) it's it's (laughs) traumatizing. (laughs) All right. Our final piece of Dune news is that starting tonight, Dune Pod is kicking off a fundraising drive for Texas food banks. Yes. Inspired by a lot of folks who you know, are suffering through the consequences of a lot of irresponsible behavior by the GOP in Texas, um, literally leaving them out in the cold. Um, we want to do a small part to try and help out with that. So we are going to be matching contributions from listeners, friends, family, um, and we'll be putting this out um, uh, on Twitter and, and Instagram and whatnot, but we'll be matching donations up to $5,000 um, to support Food banks all across Texas.
1: Yeah, that's right. We are liquidating some of our chome holdings to help out <laughs> uh, with this terrible travesty that's happening. And we have a lot of, like I remember from sending out the Dune pod uh, Christmas cards, we have a lot of Texas listeners. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, Meredith, who is going to be a guest next week uh, for Lady Hawk, uh, and also Corey, uh, mm-hmm. number one voicemail, Dune Pod family member Corey is uh is a is a Texan Austin yeah and then of course Matt your wife is a Texan that's right and so you're a Texan in law and so we yeah we've got a lot of we got a lot of Texan friends that's right and even if we didn't um they're hurting them they need help so. Yeah. It's, I'm glad we're doing this.
0: It's gonna be great. So the contributions are gonna get divided across 12 regional food banks. We're using an Act Blue that was set up by AOC to be able to make the contributions. So we'll have a link in the show notes and also look for Twitter and Instagram. You just go to follow the link, make a contribution, and then send us a DM, send us a voicemail, send us a letter at DunePod, um, and just tell us how much you donated and why you donated, like what you were excited about in doing it or not but we'll double your money um, and just help make an impact. So very excited to try and do a small part to help out on that front. All right, let's get into it. Yes. Inside Lewin Davis is the story of one man's quest for the acceptance of his art And who he is as a person. Lewin Davis is a down on his luck singer songwriter in the beating heart of the burgeoning folk music scene of the East Village in New York in 1961. Having recently lost his singing partner and been forced to become a solo act, Lewin eyes everyone with resentment that he has not achieved the success he so desperately desires. He embarks on an odyssey of discovery to find himself, his future and the cat he let escape. Along the way, he will travel dark roads with dangerous companions, face rejection, consider paths not taken, and finally, accept himself for who he is and who he can be. Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. Good. Wow. Wow. This movie, I tell you. So first of all, um, loosely inspired by folk musician Dave Van Ronk, mm-hmm. who the Coen brothers had studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Bruno Delbanel as our uh, director of photography. We have production design by Jess Goncher, who had worked with the Coens on No Country and Buster Scruggs, True Grit, also Little Women. Um, so it's a really, really talented team as well as Oscar Isaac, um, Carey Mulligan and uh Justin Timberlake, John Goodman, like just the cast in this is, is really incredible. Yeah. What was your what was your original experience with this film?
1: Uh I was, I mean, like anytime a Cohen Brothers movie comes out, it's sort of like the most exciting thing that happens that year, uh, like art wise for me. Um, and I was really excited to see this one. Yeah, it was like my it's funny, like my impression of it was like, I was like, oh, it belongs in, like, the misanthrope um, subcategory mm. of, can- of, of Coen Brothers movies, like, um, you know, Serious Man and Barton Fink. Um, but I didn't think, I don't think I realized in, until seeing it a second time, just how good it is. Like, my, my mm. I, I really think this is an underrated movie. And it's kind of, also, it's also wild because it's, like, their follow-up to True Grit. Um, so it's like their follow-up to like one of their most commercially successful movies to date. Mm. Um, and this movie was not a commercial success because it's like a depressing movie about a uh, made up folk singer from the sixties.
0: It, it barely even had like distribution, right? Like it.
1: Yeah. They had a weird distribution problem with it too. Cause it's like CBS films or whatever. <laughs> like,
0: what Rob, what's the deal with CBS films? I don't know too much about CBS <laughs> films,
1: um,
2: <laughs> but I, I do remember seeing it in, th- you know, in the theater opening weekend and, and liking it and defending it uh-huh. a lot mm. because there, there was some, I remember fans may have expected something else, but if you, if you look back, the reviews are stellar Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and like, I'm sure the Rotten Tomato score is super high and
0: 92. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's gotta be one of their best reviewed films. Mm. Yeah. And it was, it made a lot of top 10 lists and just looking back now, it's, been well received. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I so I love this film. I the I think the first time that I saw it, I did not see it in the theater. I'm a big Cohen fan, but didn't see uh, did not see it in the theater. My brother Reed, who is the one who introduced me to Dune, um, we were at a family reunion and he threw on TV the Cohen Brothers concert movie for Inside lewin Davis, which is called Another Day, Another Time.
1: Oh yeah, you mentioned this to me. Yeah.
0: It's incredible. So it's, they did a show at Town Hall in New York City and it's the Avett brothers, uh, Punch brothers, Jack White, uh, Milk Carton kids, Joan Baez, Gillian Welch, Dave Rawlings, just an incredible lineup of, of performers. And they go back and forth between them hanging out in the studio rehearsing and them on stage at Town Hall. And it's just amazing to see T-bone Burnett kind of like orchestrating everything that's going on. And we might as well just hit this right, you know, right out of the gate the music is is almost the most important part of this um, movie there's essentially no score um, there is only the performances that that are played through the film and in researching this all of those performances except for one are live yeah they were all performed by the artists and sung live and recorded live in front of those those folks on stage which is crazy absolutely amazing yeah.
1: It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I
0: didn't realize until rewatching those Oscar Isaac did all the songs. Like I really didn't
1: know that, which seems like a, a kind of a critical detail.
0: Uh, As a guitarist, those are not easy songs to play. That is a very, very difficult style of finger picking that he is doing. Yeah. Um, I think it's called Travis style. Um, it's super syncopated and really, really hard. So that to me was incredible.
1: Wild shit. I didn't realize it was all, I, until you just said this, I didn't know it was all live. I didn't know like, I didn't know those were live performances. That's crazy.
2: Just from a filmmaking perspective, that's that's a lot of extra work.
1: Yeah. Because, mm. I mean, how many takes did they have to do in the fucking car and stuff like that? Like, it, it, you know, it seems like it would be, mm. and like all the extras, like on any of the stage performances, it just seems like a lot of hassle to do it that way.
0: Yeah. I'm assuming, what, would they just shoot it, Rob, with multiple cameras and then? Yeah, I
2: mean, I I think they probably shot it the way you would shoot a concert. But, um, you know, for most films where the music is not, that critical, mm-hmm. uh, you would shoot it like a music video where the music would be um, pre recorded and the band would lip sync.
0: Well, it, it, it really works. And I think that this opening scene of Hang Me, and it starts with just the sound of the bar in the background, and then you hear him kind of warming up, and then he starts playing, and he plays Hang Me, which is an absolutely beautiful song. Hang Me, oh, hang me, and I'll be
1: dead and gone would the hanging, but the laying in the grave so
0: long, poor boy, been all around this world. And just the shot of him, like really tight up on his face, and his performance is great. People love it. And then he gets off stage, and Poppy, who is the the guy who's the owner of the Gaslight, the bar, tells him that he was a mess last night, and that his friend is waiting out back. And he goes outside and he gets his ass kicked by this guy in a like a kind of like suit and kind of made up well uh for quote yelling your crap during the show the night before. It was just such a weird jarring opening
1: yeah it's it's you start like, okay, it's not going good. I don't know what's going on, but it's not it's not whatever's not going it's not going great for him uh that shout out to Pavi Max Casella, who's uh, Vinny Del Delpino from Doogie Hauser. Um, a formative <laughs> a formative sitcom uh, In my early childhood
0: Nice, nice uh, So he's woken up the next morning By uh, a cat uh, That is uh, licking his face uh, And it turns out he's crashed at the Gorefine's house up on the upper West side um, And there's this great moment where he puts on His album with his former Partner Mike and Fare Thee Well plays out I remember one evening As he leaves with a door open and begins chasing the cat, and so this is sort of the core motif of the film. Is he's like constantly trying to find the cat or catch the cat and get it back?
1: Very handsome cat. Mm. Uh, Can we talk about just for a second? During the cat scene, and then also like the scenes of the crowd in the uh, in the gaslight that opening, in the when he's doing hang me, and it's just like so phenomenally lit like, you know, you got the silhouette of the crowds and the light on him and it's just like, it's funny because my memory of this movie actually was that it was in black and white Mm. Um, and I I was like, when it was in color, I was like, oh shit, like it's in color but like, it's all just so precise like everything about like the from the beginning of this movie just strikes me as like, it's this like impression I have like of like also like watching like a Kubrick movie like where it's just like this fuck you filmmaking of just like, I know exactly what I'm doing, like every frame I know what I'm doing Uh, and it's just, I don't know. It just it just blows me away the precision of how they make movies.
2: Yeah. I mean, every department I, it, there's a lot of perfection that went into making this film and the experience that they have is kind of ever present plus they were working, you know, they usually work with Roger Deakins up to that point. Yeah. So, um
0: Roger was doing Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And, and I guess Bruno kind of brought his own style to film it, you know, to filming and, and made some adjustments to, to kind of accommodate what, what, uh, Deacons had kind of introduced. Um, but the, the lighting is, is really gorgeous. It's, I guess he, he's kind of known for shooting with a lot of soft light. Mm-hmm. He, he, his best known film other than this may be, uh, Amelie. Mm. Right. You remember that? Yeah, one? of course. And that had some great cinematography too. He he, I know he shot one of the Harry Potter movies too. Yeah, I forgot to know which one. I think Half
1: Blood Prince. Uh, maybe. That explains a lot though. The, I forgot to look up his his work, and the Amelie thing makes a lot of sense because it like all the faces. There's a lot of close ups where it feels very soft, like it's like you know everyone like looks like real, like they've almost been through an Instagram filter or something. Like you know, they, it like, feels
0: ethereal to me. Like yeah, that, that was the sense that I had.
1: Yeah,
2: if I'm not mistaken, that was something that he achieved in post. So the film was, he shot 35 millimeter film. It was scanned and then, you know, colored. And this, mm. and this, that
1: look was applied there.
0: Oh, wait, wait. I have to go grab a prop. Hold on one second. I'll be right back.
1: Weird. Okay. It's Amelie. He's got Weird. Amelie in his closet. <laughs> <laughs> Here it comes. He's in costume.
2: It's <laughs> <laughs> Halloween costume from
0: 1988.
1: <laughs> He's just got a small French woman in the closet. What is, is that? Is that...
0: Okay, I have my, I have my prop. So when the Cohen brothers were talking to Bruno about the film, Bruno said, it's got to be the cover to Freewheel and Bob Dylan.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And the Coens had previously said to themselves, it's got to be the cover of Freewheel and Bob Dylan. Yeah, it makes sense. And so you can see how it's kind of like very... Kind of washed out, kind of faded. Right. Um,
1: but just amazing. It it's cold and yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. New York City. And he's got like this not enough of a jacket.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That makes
1: sense. That makes sense. All
0: right. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. It's my dad's favorite album. Yeah. Love it. Oh yeah. You're please, um, Johnny Five, please tell us about your love for Bob Dylan. I'm I'm gonna avoid my Bob Dylan slander
1: in this particular podcast because of the subject matter. I don't I don't wanna Oh, I see. I don't wanna like okay. I don't wanna like, you know. It's not it's not it doesn't seem the right venue to to trot it out.
0: But um I, I wish I knew which episode, so I could just drop in the quote, but just here's me doing Jason's voice, the most overrated songwriter of the 20th century. <laughs> I mean, again, quote. it's sort of like my godfather <laughs> slander, which is just like, how can it not be the
1: most overrated where it is literally everyone's number one? Like all I'm saying is that it's yeah. maybe not number one. Uh yeah. Anyway.
0: Anyway, all right, well so so Bruno, we can all agree the cinematography is is fantastic. The other thing that he said that really caught with me and jason, you you nailed it there in the description of the intro. Bruno said, "I always wanted to have the set to fall off. The actors are lit, but the set vanishes, yeah, and you definitely get that when you have Lewin. It's just his face, and then just black behind him. And you can't see anything else. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. But stuff like the Fine's apartment is like so good in terms of like it's like, yes, that is an upper west side apartment. Like, you know, it's just <laughs> like it, it it it's like it totally tracks. Um God. It's fucking amazing, this movie.
0: So he heads down uh, with the cat. He heads down to try and find another place to stay. And he heads down to Jim and Jean's place where we have the introduction of Carrie Mulligan. So I had completely forgotten yeah. that they were together in, in drive. drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just two years earlier. Yeah, uh, they're back. So that was nice to see him. She was tough. Yeah, she's great. She was She was tough. Impressions, Rob?
2: I appreciated it a lot. I, I know that... Um, there's not a lot of harsh criticism of this film, Mm -hmm. but what I did see, um, was that that there were people who are critical of, of her character, Hmm. not her performance, but that the character is is, is pretty shrill, Mm. Mm -hmm. that there's not a lot of, there's
1: not a lot of nuance there.
2: No, it's pretty, she, every time she sees him, she's pissed off at him.
1: She's just calling him an asshole every single time. That's a fair criticism.
0: But only in the last scene does it change. Um, her, her very last scene, it yeah. changes for both of them, I think, in a powerful way. I thought
2: she was great. And I, 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 didn't, I felt it was important that she took that tone or the character took that tone.
0: Mm. Uh, she tells him that she's pregnant. And so he immediately starts to try and figure out how he can get money for her to get an abortion. So he asks one of his good friends, her boyfriend.
1: Yeah, the cuckold. For money. That's a move. To get- That's a move. <laughs> <laughs> to To sleep with your best, sleep with a good friend's wife, knock uh, her up, get her pregnant, and then ask your good friend for the money to get an abortion on the sneak.
0: Yeah, and, and we can say, obviously, she doesn't know whether it's Jim's kid or whether it's Lewin's kid, but there's a great moment where she basically says, To be clear, asshole, you fucking asshole, I want very much to have it if it's Jim's. That's what I want. But since I don't know, you not only fuck things up by fucking me and maybe making me pregnant, but even if it's not yours, I can't know that. So I have to get rid of what might be a perfectly fine baby, a baby I want, because everything you touch turns to shit! Shit! Like King Midas's idiot
2: brother. Well, okay,
0: I see. And so now she has to get rid of this quote perfectly, perfectly fine baby. Fine baby. Yeah. And she just berates him. You should always walk around in a condom because you're shit. Uh, just tears into him. I just, hmm. I, I love that. I thought, I thought that was really great. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, Jim gets him a gig to help out at Columbia. So this great, like him showing up at the Columbia studio, like the, just the corporate office uh, waiting room. It looked dope. And then, and then going in to perform. So they're doing a song called please, Mr. Kennedy, which was written by, um, by Jim. And this song in actuality is like the fourth version of songs that were please, Mr. Kennedy. It was like avoiding the draft and uh, various other things.
1: So was it a, is that a real song or is that for this movie?
0: There are there are three other songs that are basically like this. Okay. So this was an homage an homage to them. Okay. Adam Driver. Driver.
1: Yeah. Adam Driver. Amazing. <laughs> and this is like this is pre Kylo, obviously, right? Like this is Yeah, this
0: is like season one or season two of girls.
1: Yeah, this is like an early film role for this is like an early film role for Mr. Driver really given it a hundred percent starting a tradition too of Adam Driver sings awkwardly in movies and doesn't enjoy talking about it in interviews
2: have you heard that uh, his character is based on Ramblin' Jack Elliott? no I have not heard that that's wild it's kind of wild yeah he uh I don't know how much you know about Ramblin' Jack but no please well he's a, he's an interesting character in Bob Dylan's uh, story because mm. he's a he's a Jewish cowboy oh really <laughs> Yeah and he I don't know the whole history but they I know they played together and there was some kind of mentoring going on at at one point and um, Interesting
0: Interesting
2: I don't I don't know if uh Ramblin Jack ever got full credit for the, the Jewish cowboy character huh. that he cre- that he created.
0: Right. And Al Cody, uh Arthur, I forget what his I forget what his, his other name was. This is just a great line. Every moment that Driver is in this film, every little bit of it is is top notch. This really is like the first major motion. Pe- oh he he
1: he's he has a is bit it Lincoln. Lo- he has Lincoln and Francis Ha. And then this Yeah that makes uh, sense. Are like the are like the the pretty, but this is a pretty big role for him at this time. Uh, yeah, and it's you know it's two, and then two years later he's he's opposite he's opposite Poe Dameron. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wild shit. What a what a what a business.
0: So the other thing that's really amazing uh about this scene is Lewin is just taking a dump on the song. This song's terrible. Who wrote this song? And and Justin Timberlake as Jim. You know, I wrote this song. Um, but then oh, once they start performing the <laughs> please, Mr. Kennedy, I
1: don't, on,
2: don't,
3: don't
0: show into know if it's just me or not But I thought they were both completely into it Oh yeah, he was giving it like, his all Yeah. And they were having fun. Like he was back in that vibe of playing with other people. So like, to me, there was something really beautiful in that moment of getting caught up in the music.
2: Uh, This is a small, small thing, but he, um, it seemed to me that Lewin has a big thing about music and art being his job. Right. And, and he always talks about it, you know, that's my job. Yep. And it comes up like even there's an elevator scene. And mm-hmm. oh, yeah, the guy in the elevator who won't, won't take the cat is like, I'm an elevator man, that's my job. Right. That's a good job. <laughs> I'm doing that. my job.
1: That's well spotted. Nice. Yeah. I think that's great. I think, I think that, that ties into like the thing that I think um, distinguishes this movie. I talked about earlier how this is like sort of in the misanthrope uh, yeah. vertical of Coen Brothers movies. The, the difference within that vertical is that he's actually very good at what he at mm-hmm. what he's doing. Like Barton Fink is not a great uh is not a great playwright and like a serious man. The main the Walter Gopnik is is not like uh you know he's a phys- he's he's just like a nebbish. Like he's not he's not like you know he doesn't have some divine gift. Like mm-hmm. he like Lewin Davis is is amazing. Touched by God. Like he has a he has a supreme talent and it's just he's he's out of sorts and out of time. He's just a just a hair off in terms of when he needed to have it together, uh, in order to, you know, have caught fire. Um, and he's an asshole. I mean, which, you know, like, what are you going to do? But like, he, he has a real gift. Um, and so when he's playing, you really, you never doubt that he has a real gift whenever he's playing.
0: That's right. But it's, he's become impossible outside of it because of the tragedy, um, of losing his partner and then constantly being on the edge. He's just, he's, barely hanging on at at any moment there's when he goes so he goes to stay at al's place um and the first thing he does is he checks out the couch and he tries it and he lays down he's like okay um and it's like it's his routine because he's so used to just having to sleep on couches that's the best it's going to get yeah, for him
1: yeah there's a great quote there's a great quote because I, I was in, uh, i should i should cite a.o scott's new york times review about the movie he, he was it was a rave he loved the movie He says, if Lewin is an archetype, he's also a familiar uh, kind of Cohen anti-hero. The latest face in the gallery of losers, deadbeats, and hapless strivers, the brothers have been assembling over 16 features for nearly 30 years. These dudes are usually at the mercy of other people, a hostile universe, and their own stupidity. Above all, they are the playthings of a pair of cruel and capricious fraternal deities whose affection for their creatures is often indistinguishable from contempt. Wow. Uh, and, and, And like... I think, wow. I think, and, so, and then the, re- the next, the next paragraph goes, we are as a species ridiculous, vain, ugly, selfish, and self-deluding, but somehow some of our attempts to take stock of this condition, our songs and stories and moving pictures, old and new manage to be beautiful, even sublime. And like, this is, this is a pretty good, this is a pretty good synopsis of the Cohen project. Yeah. Um, across these movies. Um, and I don't really have much to add beyond what Scott already now <laughs> <already know.
0: laughs> Good job. A.O. Scott. Yeah. End of podcast. <laughs> Two things. So, um, so Lewin, because he's desperate for money, he waives his right to royalties on Please, Mr. Kelly yeah. and takes a session fee instead. No. And they do say it twice in that scene. So like they make it clear and then they have a good callback to it at the end of the film. But you're just like, ugh, Lewin, yeah. no, why? Well, you needed, um,
1: needed the 200 bucks right then to pay for the abortion. He couldn't wait for the royalty checks. Of course.
0: Is, it, is this a scene with the, the
2: records? Like the... That's the next scene. Unsold records. That's the next yeah.
0: scene. So so he goes from there, he goes to Mel's office, and he's given the unsold records, which he then takes to Al Cody's um, apartment. And so as he comes in and he sits down and he slides it to get, basically he's trying to stash his stuff where he can leave it. And as he slides it under the desk, he runs into Al's box of unsold records, yeah. which I thought was an amazing, an amazing touch. amazing touch, yeah. Yeah,
2: that's yeah. great.
0: The other thing I noted here was hallways in this movie are amazing. Like the hallways are like three feet wide and they end in like these super closed. Yeah. That's all constructed, right? That's not, that's, those aren't real hallways.
2: I'm, I'm pretty sure they're constructed. I, <laughs> the Upper West Side apartment, I'm sure, is constructed too because it's it's just perfection. Yeah. It's just, there's every perfect thing. Yeah.
1: Mm. And you, they, you wouldn't be able to put the camera anywhere because it's not big enough. If it was real,
2: right? Yeah, I mean they, they do the the period work in this is phenomenal. Yeah, like it's it's so good.
1: They, uh, speaking of which, like when he gets off the the scene where he first gets off the subway after coming down from the Gorfine's apartment into the West Village is is my old subway. So that's a Christopher Street stop on Seventh Avenue uh, in in the in the village, mm. and like it's amazing like how well dressed that street corner is. Like you know because you, you it's. It's like, you know, like the big gay ice cream shop is like, is like right there. And, you know, obviously it had to be <laughs> framed out. Um, and yeah, so um, it's amazing.
0: That's awesome. Um, so he meets Gene. They have another fight. Uh, she, she, she goes off on him. Um, specifically he's calling her a sellout, um, which I think is interesting. This is another part of like, he's saying it's a job, but he's unwilling to do the things that needed to be done, um, or to compromise in any way that, that he thinks. Um, but he does see the cat walking across the street. So he jumps out, um, and he goes and he gets the cat. Uh, and so hooray, hooray for that. But then we do have the moment where he goes to see his doc, uh, to set up the abortion and finds out that the last girl he got pregnant didn't actually get the abortion. So this is like the other major kind of emotional swing for, for Lewin as he's kind of trying to think about that.
1: Yeah, he's got a kid out there in, in Akron. Mm. And that child grew up to be LeBron James.
0: <laughs>
1: hmm. um, there was
2: a moment, and forgive me if you haven't gotten to this part yet, but he he calls the gorf, Gorfine's office. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When he first loses the cat. There's a really funny thing. He calls, he gets, he gets a secretary or something, and um, he says, uh, tell him Lewin has the cat. Lewin is a cat. No.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not Lewin is the cat, which, you know, for, for people who study this film, that kind of comes up. Oh, really? <laughs> that is, is Lewin oh. the cat. Oh. Interesting. And, and the Coens, I think are just, it's their wit that they just stuck it in, that there's a line in the film where he says, yeah. no, <laughs> Lewin is not the cat. Right, right.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I have the, Lewin has the cat. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, but it's, it's a good, good Coen joke.
0: Well, I read a, I read a quote where the, where I forget which Coen it was said, for a while, we were worried that there was no story. So we added the cat. Yeah. <laughs>
2: hmm. I did read that the the origin of of the story. What they started with was the idea that Dave Von Gronk um, mm-hmm. is be, is beat mm-hmm. up after show, and that was that was it. Like the the first domino, yeah.
0: All right, so he, he takes the cat and he's triumphant. He takes the cat back to the Gorfines and he's at a dinner party there. Um, and again, he's very uncomfortable because they ask him to perform after uh, after dinner. Yeah. And he begins singing, uh, you know, really beautiful song, fairly well. Um, and Lillian Gorefine, who the woman who plays him is fantastic, she begins singing. Um, and he immediately shuts her down. He's like, What, what are, you are you doing? doing? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And she says, I'm singing Mike's part. And he completely freaks out and starts shouting. And then he realizes he's been an asshole. He understands he's going to leave. And that's where Lillian comes back in the room holding the cat.
3: This is not our cat. What? Of course that's your cat. Oh my god. It's not even male. Where's its scrotum? Lewin? Wh- Where's his scrotum?
1: Where's his scrotum is a is is a great is a great Cohen joke for sure.
0: All right, so now we now we get to by far my favorite part of the film, and that is On the Road with Roland mm-hmm. Turner. Mm. So mm. um, it, it's been established that uh, Roland Turner is a jazz musician who is going to Chicago and needs somebody to help pay for gas money. So Lewin decides to go under the concept that he's going to try and find Bud Grossman um, and get representation. And so I, I cannot tell you, I sampled almost every line that, Johnny, that John Goodman uttered in this film it's um, because they're so great. Just from the opening. I
4: am Roland Turner. This is my valet, Johnny Five.
1: Johnny Five. It's, it's amazing. The haircut. The, I, I, I would like to be in the conversations where they were talking about the haircut that he was going to have. Oh, yeah. Uh, this like, kind of weird Caesar bowl cut thing that he's got going on. So John Goodman, this is his uh, uh, John Goodman from St. Louis, Missouri should be noted mm. uh, this is his sixth Cohen Brothers sixth and most recent Cohen Brothers movies the other credits mm. include Raising Arizona Barton Fink Hudsucker Proxy uh, The Big Lebowski uh, and Old Brother War Though
0: Thou so great yeah, so great just his his stories of the Welsh rare bit um, him giving Lewin a really hard time about music
4: but in jazz you know we play all the notes twelve notes of the scale dipshit not three chords on a ukulele G, G, C, G, C, D, G. Oh, if you make a living, add of more power to you. C, G, C G.
1: G. <laughs> He doesn't say on a ukulele, he says on a ukulele.
0: <laughs> amazing shit. And he, he, he threatens a hex. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. Roland is less like ripping on Lewin, and Lewin threatens to shove his cane up his ass. And his response is just amazing.
4: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Except threats and intimidation won't work with me. You want to know why? This would interest you. I studied Santeria and certain other things that squares like you would call the black arts due to lack of understanding from Chano Pozo in New Orleans. You say you'll mess me up? I don't have to make those childish threats. I do my thing, and one day you wake up wondering, why do I have this pain in my side? Or maybe it won't even be that specific. Maybe it's why is nothing going right for me? My life is a big bull of shit. I don't remember making this big bowl of shit.
2: Why's my life turned to shit? But what's so funny is that the hex pretty much describes already, the guy's yeah, life. It's yeah. what's uh, currently
0: <laughs> currently exists. Yeah. yeah, All right, well <laughs> let's talk about uh, let's talk about our man uh, Garrett Headland. As yeah, Garrett Hedlund. Johnny Five.
1: Yeah, exciting to see him uh, in the in a row. I didn't recognize. It. I had to, I was like, oh yeah, who played Johnny Five? I was like, oh, it's that bro. Um, uh uh-huh. Yeah, our guy, our guy from Tron.
0: <laughs> Rob, what's your take on Tron Legacy? I,
2: I don't I don't know the film very well.
1: I haven't. I've only seen it once. I can't really. I can't speak very yeah. coherently about. It.
0: I like I like the music. Yeah, yeah.
1: good Def Punk soundtrack.
0: Yeah, I love I mean I love the soundtrack, obviously. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was fun and I thought it was an interesting idea about uh you know the machines trying to get out. I thought that was a cool, a cool concept.
1: That might be as much as needs to be said about Tron Legacy.
0: Fair enough. Roland Turner's behavior is so weird. He's constantly out of it, he's like passed out, and I remember the first time I see it, I was like, what is going on with this guy? And he keeps going to the bathroom. So you have this shot of them at Fred Harvey's Oasis Dining Room. I just thought that scene and the lighting inside that giant diner was Mm
1: -hmm. unbelievable. I made the same note. I was like, this, this diner, how did they come up? Like, what was the whole, like the Fred Harvey Oasis dining room? My God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So he overdoses. He's been shooting heroin this whole time. He overdoses, but uh, Johnny Five says, oh, he looks all right. And they get him back in the car. They end up passing out. Um, Johnny gets arrested by the cops for sleeping in the car and takes the keys with him. So Lewin has this moment where he has to decide what to do. And he leaves Roland and the cat to die (laughs) on the side of the road, Um, which I mean, maybe he could have carried the cat. He certainly couldn't carry Roland.
1: He looked back like he knew he was being an asshole. Like he looks back, he looks back leaving the cat. He's like, eh, well, I guess I'm a dick. I'm not taking the cat.
0: But the sound there was absolutely haunting. Like it was really horrifying to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was intense. Okay. All right. So he makes his way to Chicago. He's totally broke, but he gets to the gate of horn where he meets Bud Grossman played by F. Murray Abraham from Amadeus fame. Yeah. Um, And he plays Queen Jane for him.
1: King Henry King Henry Will you do one thing for me? Will you open my right side And find my
0: baby And find Unreal. Unreal! That scene, like I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And uh, F. Murray says, "I don't see a lot of money here." Brutal.
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I guess that's a Joan Baez song, "The Death of Queen Jane." Mm. Mm. I think it's a class. I think it's like a a really old song. Oh, it was like a really old song. All right, yeah. I, this is a, this is um, this is like I don't have a lot of knowledge of of of,
0: of music from before nineteen eighty two. I once uh, tuned guitars for restrung guitars for Joan Baez because her granddaughter went to school with my daughter. Um, and I got to tune two of her custom Joan Baez Martin guitars. And then because you have to play a guitar after you've tuned it to help stretch the strings, got to sit and play guitar just the two of us for 20 minutes.
1: That's kind of cool.
0: And I asked her what it was like. I was like, because I wasn't thoughtful enough. I was like, my favorite album is Freewheel and Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she was very gracious and didn't say that you know that they had that huge falling out, but she did say that they used to play in the early '60s with Lead Belly and and that it was just the most amazing place to be. So like that's that's a moment of being right there.
2: Uh, when you said uh, I asked what it was like, I thought you meant you you asked her what it was like playing with you for 20 minutes. What is that? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Was this at, where would you rank this in terms of your most memorable <laughs> musical experiences in your life?
0: Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Oh it's uh, like it's a, it's
1: a super old song. It's like a medieval timey song or something. Mm.
0: It's
2: it's um it's about a woman who uh dies during childbirth. Yeah, so <laughs>
0: like is that just nihilism? Is that him destroying his own opportunity? Is that him like fuck you, you just like my shit or not? Uh yeah. That's right.
1: He's like he's like I uh, like I'm I like he's an, he's an artist. He's not like looking to join a trio. Uh and, like, he knows he nailed the audition. And so if, like, this guy doesn't see any money in it, he's not going to, like, compromise.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: Apparently that character, too, is, is based on Albert Grossman, who was um, a big part of uh, Dylan's career. Oh, interesting. Mm. And then the trio, if I'm not mistaken, is potentially Peter, Paul, and Mary.
0: Oh, uh, the trio that he was trying to he was put trying together? to put together, that makes
1: sense, yeah. of course, yeah, that makes sense, awesome Some trivia,
0: so from there, he heads home, he's defeated, um he drives back with a with a guy sharing driving duties. Gets exhausted, uh, is falling asleep while driving. This gave me a big flashback to planes, trains, and automobiles, which I just watched this Christmas for the first time ever. Uh, but this is a little rougher as he hits the cat running across the highway. Yeah. Um, and the cat limps off into the into the woods. He dings the cat.
2: Just one thing. Right after he hits the cat, yeah. he, he passes Akron. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> it, it is pointed out that... Um, the the woman who had the baby mm-hmm. that was a couple of years ago so he has a t- he has a 2 year old in Akron. Mm-hmm. and it it seemed he can't do it yeah he can't do it mm.
0: yeah but he gets back and he decides that he's going to give up he's going to give up on music he's going to get back in the merchant marines he you know pays to get uh to get his dues to be able to go back spending the last money that he has and then he goes to see his father and he says i'm going to play a song for you and And he says, you used to like this, which is a beautiful callback. His sister, when she was giving him a bunch of his stuff earlier in the movie, she she had a recording of him playing Shoals of Herring when he was eight years old, she said. So I love that. It's just a very efficient, nice little moment of tying that in there. And his performance is, again, absolutely riveting.
2: Well, I earned my key and I paid my way. And I earned the gear that I was wearing. I sailed a million
0: miles,
2: caught ten million fishes.
0: We were dreaming of the shores of Heron. And you see his dad just kind of like making faces through the course of the performance. You have no idea what is happening inside his head. And then you have Oscar's reaction to his father's reaction, uh, just saying, wow, wow. And then going to the orderly because he shit himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. It's an amazing performance, though. The performance of the show is is fucking ridiculous. Like, uh, And the father. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Golly. Man, I don't
1: know. I'm going to have to listen to the soundtrack, I guess.
0: The soundtrack is very good uh, I noticed all of the versions that are on the soundtrack are not the versions oh
1: they made they made like a studio album. that makes sense.
0: they did first, and um they said that they the first thing they did was they went in and they recorded all of the music and did all the practices and got ready and then they shot the movie mm. um, which is smart okay so um so then he goes to see Jean to tell her that he's he's giving up um and she tells him that she got him. a a slot at the gaslight and he really does, he actually says, I love you in that moment. Mm -hmm. And both his reaction and hers, I thought was, she was much softer in that moment, more kind of, I don't know, just thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, We go back to his, uh, essentially back to the beginning of the movie. Um, He does deliver, uh, or he goes back to see the gore finds, finds out that they have the cat is back, it's Ulysses. I was curious, is there a like Greek- aspect to this of course
1: I mean like the story of Ulysses is a story of a wanderer who like goes on a journey and comes back home so like the I mean like the like the it's a very kind of on the nose illusion right yeah and I think they
2: did it with um you know, it's a oh brother where yeah. art thou yeah, Odyssey. Is, Was also the Odyssey, is, yeah. is based
1: on the Odyssey yeah yeah so it's like a self callback
0: yeah all right um, and so then we're back to him in the opening scene of The Gaslight um, and he plays, it was after he had played Hang Me, he plays one last song which is fairly Well, again it's him playing the song that he and Mike used to perform and you feel like he has integrated it now and really made it his own If I
1: had wings like Nora's
2: dove
1: I'd fly
0: And then ends with him getting beat up uh, outside. And I will say the cool little touch, as he's walking outside, it's Bob Dylan sitting down to play after him. And the play out through the end of the film, uh, as he watched the guy that kicked his ass get in a cab and drive away uh, and says, au revoir, uh, you know, um, another day, another time plays out. It's just beautiful.
1: Yes, it's really beautiful. Um, really cool. And like it's sort of like so then you realize that the movie is a circle. Um, you know, that you, you, you you've kind of been in this um, this loop. Um, which like you know, is both clever but also like, you know, it's his own life is kind of spiraling down the drain as well. Um and then it's like also like the structure of the movie is like a folk song in which like, you know, the the right. the, the last verse is a refrain of the first. Mm.
2: I feel like there's there's been some debate about whether it is the same scene yeah. or whether it's yeah, some mystical
1: actual time. Like he's know. reliving. He's, it's, it's kind of, he's caught in a loop, like an actual loop. Like he's,
0: yep. Yeah. i I it, read it's, that too. Wait, 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 no, no. I think it's definitely the real scene. I think they, the way that they've edited it is, is clever. Like they, the first time through they cut before he says, it's my wife, uh, per, you know, my wife trying to perform. And also the Dylan, um, soundtrack is not playing in the background. You don't hear that bleed in. But other than that, it's all the same.
2: And there is the the one big difference is the cat doesn't get out the second time. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Because he's because he stops it. Yeah. So that's he's learning some, something. He's learned some. He's, he,
2: he's not in exactly the same place he was when he started, yeah. but almost. <laughs> almost. Almost. And he miss, he also missed the Dylan performance, yeah. right? Because he went outside to get his ass. He doesn't, kicked. Care. Exactly. He doesn't
1: care about him. He doesn't think he doesn't really think anyone else is good. He like he doesn't think um the soldier guy is good. He doesn't think, you know, oh, yeah, soldier he, he doesn't think good. that uh, Adam Driver is good. He doesn't think that Jane, you know, Gene right. and Jim are good. Like he, he doesn't think anyone is good.
0: He is kind of transfixed during the performance. When Gene is singing, he is he is kind of transfixed, but I don't know if that's uh love or yeah. or what's happening, or as close as he gets to it.
2: The, the Coens did say that a big part of the scene um, was had to do with authenticity, that everyone was constantly blowing the authenticity whistle.
0: Yeah. I'm interested because um, Dave and Ronk's wife saw the film and said, this is much meaner than it ever was in the scene. Um, it just was not like this. So I thought that was an interesting take. But we also have – um, what was Marty's um, documentary on Dylan, where when he went when he went electric, right?
2: No direction home. Oh, the, yeah, no
0: direction home. Exactly. Like he just like the the way that the the, the entire scene turned against him, fans and and others is kind of amazing.
2: Well, uh, speaking of Joan Baez, if if you watch, don't look what is it? Don't look back. Mm. Um, the documentary where he's traveling in England mm. with her. Uh, Dylan is is awful to other people. He's awful. He was awful to Donovan. Mm. He he was just a prick. So, if he was any part of the scene, it probably was like that.
0: That's what happens when you're the greatest songwriter of the 20th century. <laughs> Sometimes you're a dick, Jason. Before you respond, what did we learn about Dune 2021 here? Oscar Isaac,
1: very good actor. Uh, <laughs> if you can get Oscar Isaac to be in your movie in any part. Uh, I would try to. Go for it. I would try to do that. Um, yeah. He seems he seems very good at the acting on screen.
0: And nice to have him before he's shared with the entire world. Yeah. You know, yeah. in a more in a more intimate way. Um, Rob, what do you think?
2: I recently heard Quentin Tarantino um, talking about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. and he wanted to make a film about the whole milieu and that's what this felt like to me mm-hmm. um because you know there is a plot and there's a cat that you follow the whole time but it was it's a you know similar to once upon a time it's it's a, a great vehicle to to just explore this period and and do it with such detail and i i love both the films mm. um because you do get to kind of travel in time and and get you know all of the detail, all of the texture. And that's a a really big part of the, both those movies, I think.
1: That's a really good that's a really good observation too because like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is also about like a um like an also ran, like you know, like someone who could have made it uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you know just like is kind of in this other, you know, in this demi world. Uh and like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is ultimately a uh you know, a comedy in the greek sense like you know it's a it's like the hero wins uh and once upon you know and rewrites history in doing so whereas like inside lewin davis is not that <laughs> like he's mm. not, he's not but they, they both deal with sort of like the stories of like also rands or like people who are mm. um you know that that are on to the side of of greatness mm.
0: Mm.
2: yeah like dylan and manson aren't real characters right in movies about Dylan and Manson. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Well, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I definitely love this movie. I thought the the, the musical performances will continue to, to stay with me forever. This soundtrack is like in constant rotation um, for the last seven years um, and will, will continue to be. I definitely recommend people check out both this film and uh, Another Day, Another Time. That's super worthwhile. Also, for me, Coen Brothers, like the top of the top is Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, No Country for Old Men, um, and then I would, I would put this somewhere somewhere near uh, the top of that, that, Lebowski, Fargo. I haven't seen Lebowski and Fargo in at least 10 years either, um, so I need to go back and, and rewatch those. Who would Tilda Swinton play? <laughs> mm. I don't know. Maybe Johnny Five? Mm. Tilda Swinton
1: could play Johnny Five. Huh. Roland Turner. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that,
0: but I mean, uh, yeah, she could do anything. Um, Both Roland Turner and Johnny Five.
1: I'm going with Johnny Five. I'd like to see. I'd like to see Tilda Swinton in the Johnny Five role. Yeah, I like it. A minimalist, a minimalist role for Tilda.
2: Rob, uh, I mean Roland Turner would be yeah. great. That <laughs> she would gobble that yeah. up.
1: G G C. Yeah, what a gift John Goodman is. <laughs> He's a great actor.
0: All right, let's get into our letters, and then we have two voicemails. Okay. So the first letter is from Miguel Mata. Subject line, oh, Rob, you're going to be online here. God Emperor of Dune. Hello, DunePod, Pod, longtime listener, first-time writing for you. So, about God Emperor, I was initially shocked to see all three of you really dislike the book since it is mostly considered the second-to-best novel in the series, after the first one obviously, by a large portion of the community. I understand all the points brought up and largely agree that the man- romantic triangle is poorly executed and nothing really happens during a large portion of the text. The world-building is where I think this book shines. It's all about entertaining this living God's mind and having a literary acid trip alongside him sure there's some cheap philosophy here and there some of the classic herbert convoluted ways of explaining rather simple concepts so they sound much more deep than they truly are of course but for the most part i was fully on board i think the twists happen in our understanding of that world and not in the plot itself for example when we slowly understand the nature of arrakis or the extent of leto's control over society that was mind blowing for me Mm. definitely there's some elements there about the book being co-opted by libertarians as someone who was really into objectivism when younger it was kind of easy to see the anti-government propaganda all over this book and in my first reading i was convinced that G-O-E-O-D was a massive libertarian manifesto disguised as a human werb hybrid love story as i matured my beliefs i understood it's not all black and white nothing really is through all the Dune saga, Herbert was experimenting with different political and sociological organizations, pulling each of them to their limits to speculate on how they, in addition to the environment, shaped society over the millennia. However, one commentary that for me is clear is Frank's work is concerning centralization of power being economic power in the hands of a monopolistic guild or decision-making power in the hands of a charismatic leader or an incel worm boy. <laughs> and this is not signing up with either X nor Y political orientation. Hope I added something to the discussion. Keep up the great work. I look forward to your takes on Heretics and Chapter House, which for me are a return to form of the original Dune novel.
1: That's a great letter. It's a very well-considered letter.
0: Thank you very much, Miguel. We definitely appreciate that. Yeah. And certainly there is a lot of good detail in the, uh, in the, the thought of formation of governments, betrayal of those governments, of the people that lifted them up in the first place, um, which again, Orwell uh, had a very similar theme. Rob what's your take on on government good or bad? <laughs>
1: wow. wow. Skip. You can skip uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one 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 other note on letters. Uh we had a letter last week uh where someone was talking about our reactions to the scene from Dune. Uh our correspondent asked about the scene in which Paul as like a oh. a grumpy kid lies down after the conference. Uh on the table to go to sleep. And I went back and looked at that scene because we didn't have any good answers about it. Um, and it's like, it, it's because it's after the Hunter sinker scene. So his like room isn't mm. secure. And he goes into that conference with Lito. Uh And then like, he's like his dad is basically like, yeah, I guess you can sleep here. Why don't you pull out some chairs and just kind of go to nap, go you know, have a nap. And it's like basically... Um, Lido kind of sucking already is the sort of the point of the scene because like that that conference ends in an argument and like things feeling unresolved and then Paul's just like fine I guess I'll sleep on some chairs Dad
0: <laughs> thanks Dad so yeah it was yeah. good
1: I'd missed that detail before but I appreciate that from our nice uh, from our letter writer
0: yes that letter writer was Sophia Jones yeah Sophia thank you so much for writing in and I hope we answered your question would love to hear more of your insights on the books yeah all right here we go here
3: is our first voicemail pod it's Corey from Austin, Texas. It is. Uh, you may have heard. Quite chilly here with lots of uh, power outages and uh, lack of water. So uh, you know, it's been better. Uh, <laughs> crawled out of that news hole and into uh, a shithole. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, things are good. Uh, I'm better off than a lot of other people, so I'm really thankful. Uh, I'm have power and uh that's great we only lost power for a little bit we haven't had water for days oh, so no. that's not so cool but we're making it work and we now refer to snow as toilet water oh uh, no I don't know if you guys have <laughs> ever had to do that uh but it's an experience anyway um we are doing good so i anyway, know you guys are we thinking about us out here in texas
1: nice it's good to hear from Corey. man what a what a bummer that how it's amazing how upbeat he can be given that he doesn't have water, yeah, what a gift Corey is to the world we need we all need more more of Corey's energy
0: well, I do want to say like we encourage people to get into these books, but we don't encourage people to replicate arrakis lack of water, like uh you know Corey wearing a still suit around the house, yeah,
3: and uh thing is things getting rescheduled, my uh uh scree zine with Dune pod is stuck. In transit, so I haven't yet gotten them to start packing them up and making them available on my website.
1: But good good news is that Scree, since that voicemail was recorded, Scree has shipped to Corey. He sent us a DM.
0: Well, just in case you didn't believe in miracles, <laughs> Corey happened to <laughs> send us another voicemail too. You see,
4: Mike, we got a theory about magic and miracles. That's
3: right. I don't want to tell you how to edit your show, H, but if you could maybe put in a little bit of the Insane Clown Posse song Miracles right now, that would be (laughs) superb. Because the Scree Dune issue has finally arrived at my doorstep today. Can't believe it. I'm so excited. The sun is out. The snow is thawing. The water is back on at my house. Most of Austin is getting their power and water back. Today is truly a day of miracles. Um, And if your listeners don't know, Scree is a zine that I put out of Austin, Texas. It is a cut and paste job that I uh, put together by hand, 60 pages. So it's pretty big. And um, it is filled with tons of contributors from different artists and writers and all sorts of cool people. But the latest issue is all Dune. It is the Dune issue. The big feature, of course, is an interview with... H and Jason from Doom Pod. We also have plenty of contributors, like Kitten Goodyear did an exclusive video on for it. Uh, Meredith Borders, who is a regular on the show, she wrote a great piece uh, about the hair in uh, Lynch's Doom. There's a whole art gallery by tons of artists. There's reviews, of all Doom related. So, highly recommend it. You can get it on my website, which is www.thegrumpus.com by the time you guys have your show out it'll be available already so thank you guys thanks for everything Thanks, for being there. thanks for being
1: there. that's great news though
0: nice uh, in the show notes uh, there'll be a link and then we'll be posting on the socials and whatnot and also this is the first request for Insane Clown Posse uh, to be played on the pod so mm. we'll right. just record that Something as I think uh, about put, yeah put that in the journal all right. Well, Corey, thank you so much. Uh, we're definitely stoked to see that uh, that new issue coming out. So, Rob, speaking of plugs, what do you what do you got?
2: I'm, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still I'm I'm still doing my thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nothing new to report. Okay. Coming soon. It's going great though.
0: We have something to look forward to. Yeah. You write. You writing anything? I have been writing a lot. You journaling? Like, how's that? How's that feeling?
2: I've been working on screenplays. It's uh, it's pretty good. I I uh, I enjoy writing. It's, it's a good discipline to have.
0: Mm. Are you Are you writing like original stuff? Are you adapting stuff? Are you like? No, I've been
2: been doing original stuff. Mm. Um, I write about three hours a day.
0: Holy cow! Wow, that's awesome. That's
2: about that's about all I can handle
0: <laughs> before the kids break the door down or you, you what? Something. Yeah. It's always something. Yeah. Something breaks down. <laughs>
2: Something, something's got to give. Yeah. Um,
0: my, my new bar is at least we have water. Yeah. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason and Rob for a really great conversation. Next week, Fangoria's managing editor, Meredith Borders, returns to the pod for 1985's fantasy adventure, Lady Hawk. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow us at DunePod on Instagram and Twitter and share our social media posts as it really helps new listeners find the show. DunePod is a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week.